I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. On today's show, we pay tribute to the great chef, David Boulay, who died this week at age 70 with a never-before-shared interview conducted with him in 2014. That's coming right up on this special episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs. It's gonna take a prolonged arrangement of the senses to make some sense of this. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. As you may have noticed, Uh, In the opening of the show, today we are dispensing with all of the usual features of the program, the ads that run before the show, uh, the restaurant notes and entertainment notes I share here at the beginning, and other elements of our usual episodes, because the restaurant and chef community quite suddenly lost one of its most influential and talented members this past Monday. David Boulay, the chef who rose to prominence at Montrachet Restaurant in New York City's Tribeca neighborhood and then at his own Boulay Restaurant, both of which opened in the 1980s, passed away of cardiac arrest on Monday. He was sadly just 70 years old. My condolences first and foremost to his wife, Nicole, to his friends and other family members, and of course, to the innumerable colleagues and former cooks of his that are mourning this loss. It is no exaggeration to say that David Boulay was one of the most influential chefs of his generation in the United States, I would say, one of the most influential chefs that at this point in history we have ever had. A number of our best chefs trained under David Boulay. Many of them are named in the interview you are about to hear. I could go on and on about his relevance here, but there are numerous obituaries you can read online for his personal and professional milestones. I'll just say briefly that for those of you who don't know much about him, he was revered, among many other things, for his inquisitive mind, for his tireless pursuit of the best ingredients, and for what seemed an innate and extremely rare ability to improvise in the kitchen, a quality he shared with a very small group of chefs, Jean-Louis Paladin and Pierre Gagné come to mind. Moreover, his culinary compositions and the elements that comprised them were for most people who had the privilege of eating his food among the most indelible things they ever tasted. I did not know David well, but I had an opportunity to interview him in April 2014 for my book, Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, about the proliferation of American chefs in the 1970s and 1980s. The interview was scheduled to last about an hour. We ended up spending about three hours recording in the lower level of Boulay Restaurant in its then current home. And almost went longer. And during that time, I was lucky to witness and experience much of what I had heard about him, his philosophical nature, his rambling train of thought, which he actually apologized for at one point, but I 
personally loved it and I told him so, and his still abiding passion for food and everything about it, even after he'd been at it for decades and still had a decade, we had hoped for more, but what ended up being a decade in front of him. The interview was not concerned with anything that came after the original Boulet restaurant because of the time frame of the book I was writing. So you won't hear much about his life post 1990s here, but we did discuss his childhood on a farm, the influence of his family elders, especially his grandmother on his culinary outlook and gifts, his time working for a number of the titans of Nouvelle Cuisine in France, and his early interactions with peers like Danielle Baloud. A few things I was struck by listening back to this for the first time in a decade, most prominently his puzzlement at his own gifts. In this way, he reminds me more than anyone of Bob Dylan. If you've ever heard Dylan interviewed about his early songs, he is as mystified as the rest of us uh, by his lyrics. He is unable to really explain where they come from. And there were things that David did as well that defy explanation even to himself. I also was struck by the way he relates to artists. Most of the conversations he describes in this interview are not with other chefs, but rather with the likes of Lyle Lovett, Stephen Sondheim, Liam Neeson, and others from their worlds. And I still can't quite believe he originally went to college for business administration, along with the fact that Massimo Bottura was originally headed for a career practicing law. It is one of the most surprising paths that I've heard a particular chef was on before turning to the kitchen. For those of you out there who were not around during the 1980s or earlier, this interview will also serve as a bit of a pocket history of the time in which David rose to prominence. Before running it, I do need to say a quick thank you to the two people who made the interview happen. Stephen Hall, who was David's publicist at the time, and David Waltuck, the chef and co-owner with his wife, Karen, of the late, great Chanterelle restaurant, who put in an all-important word for me with David, who didn't grant many interviews like this. The audio you're about to hear is perfectly listenable, but please do note that this was recorded not with my usual podcast equipment. I actually did not have and wasn't even thinking about doing a podcast a decade ago, uh, but rather I did it on a pocket digital recorder uh, that was just resting on the table. So the sound is not immaculate, but I spent a lot of time, the better part of a two, two days, I would say, cleaning it up and also editing it down by about half. It comes in at under 90 minutes. Uh, I did that both to keep it to a tolerable length and also to remove anything that was off the record or moments in which he spoke uh, less than positively about anybody specific. This obviously is not the time or place for anything at all controversial. I'm gonna get out of the way now and let you listen to about an hour and a half of the story of David Boulay in his own words and voice. Here you go. I basically started when I was uh, 15 years old. My father brought me two of his two Canadian chefs, father and son from Quebec, Bert Vertefe and his father, they were a chef too, and a small sort of inn. 
And, um, you know, they cooked a lot of things. They, they did, but it wasn't anywhere close to what I found in my family or my <coughs> grandmother's cooking. Oh, she didn't eat bouillon, she didn't eat any of that stuff, but, and she raised rabbits and pheasants and goats and a couple hundred chicken and maybe a goat cheese. I was kind of spoiled, and my grandfather, who was an engineer, who came here before World War II, his family, the Salombier family, owns pastry shops and bakeries in northern Alsace, which is the highest per capita area for pastry. So when I was a little boy, I used to go over there and see and spend time both with my grandmother and him. I was very interested in the whole thing. You were not very interested. I was. Oh, you were? Yeah, seven or eight years old. And um, he was. He had baguettes in the towel mm-hmm. on top of the old Western house little oven that had the cover on it. So the pirate lights would stay in that cover, that ceramic sort of porcelain cover, would get warm, and that's where he'd raise everything up. He made brioche, pâté choux, crayon, croissant. He made everything like uh, there was normal. And my mother made homemade bread till I was 18 or 19. So when I went into the world, you know, I thought it was, I never wanted to be a chef. When I went to cooking school, I thought, this is ridiculous. These people are just not cooking, you know. And I went to the CIA down in New Britain, Connecticut, just mm-hmm. to see if it was something. And I spent about four hours there, and I couldn't wait to get out of there. It looked like in those days that they were either sailors smoking over their food or they were ex- criminals or whatever. This is what the student body looked like. It's scary. I couldn't wait to get out of there. And I said, this is not for me. I remember telling my mom that, um, you know, they didn't do everything from scratch like her her mother did. Uh Uh-huh. So I was really exposed to something that I think I had the edge up. And so I wasn't seduced or excited because I didn't didn't go to the city. My first city was Paris, really. So I didn't know what was, you know, higher level. Yeah. But where I grew up. Restaurants couldn't compete with my grandmother's cooking on the farm sure. or my mother's cooking. So uh, one of the first you know, dates, I remember, I thought I was going to have a great meal at the house. It was an iceberg lettuce cut into little squares around with bottles around it. And I, I, that was the first course, and I didn't know what, I thought it was a joke, you know, I didn't know what this was. Because at that time, we were growing stuff. My mother was pouring. We would cross into the forest, cross the street, we'd pick everything wild. My grandmother, my mother was teaching us dandelions. And, we ate tons of that kind of stuff. <clears throat> Wild watercress. These are the things that we were eating, and we got used to that sharp bitterness. Right. And all that. So I didn't really understand the whole water, the whole iceberg thing. So it wasn't like, gee, this yes, this is great. Let's let's go after this cooking, uh, this career. Um, it was for me. It was money mm-hmm. and meeting young people because we were very close to UConn campus. Yeah. So I had, I had fun with that, and then I paid my way through business. School I didn't finish, but I was paying my education and business degree. And then uh, at that point, really quickly, I decided to um, follow a buddy of mine whose mother was a director of swimming at UConn, and his father died in an airplane accident mm-hmm. in Santa Fe. They were moving back because she was she had mourned it now, and she was so I went to Santa Fe and. Um, Worked with him at the Hilton for a little bit. I said, "This is too close to. I can't do this." So, I was looking for something else, and I met the owner of the Pink Adobe. And if you know the Pink Adobe, you say, yeah. okay. it was the longest running. It still exists, but it mm-hmm. was the best restaurant in Santa Fe from that point. Of. An older woman from New Orleans who started already probably uh, she must have started that restaurant in the 40s or 50s or something. So it was a fairly established restaurant, and she made me a manager after three days. And, 
So then I got into that whole part of the whole thing, and I went to the Aspen, and I said, I said, if it was spiritual, and I decided that, um, you know, all these people that I met there, including Rosalie, who really thought I should cook. So I think that was, for me, the turning point where I said, well, gee, maybe, I'll, maybe I will study cooking. And I said, well, I'm not sure, but I'll go to France. What year would this have been? Late 70s. So I went to the Sorbonne in the mid-70s. Yeah. And I, I studied, um, you know, I understood French, but I didn't know the grammar because I'm, a, I'm of that generation where um, I have a French passport, but I grew up here, and they wanted us to be American. So I never really understood the grammar, and, you know, my grandparents only spoke to us in France, but they died kind of young. So I went there, and I studied grammar and French civilization, and I started studying art, and then mm -hmm. I was studying other things, and I really enjoyed their game. A lot of friends in different levels of the art world, and I was taking all kinds of side classes and really getting into the art thing. And I wanted to stay longer, so I started working at Bistro. Honoré Bustown, who was a writer for the Periscope. And then um, I took some classes at La Note. And in those days, there was three or four professors and only three or four professionals. So Michel Garage, Pastry Chef, Berger's Pastry Chef. They chef them, I think Chappelle and somebody else, some lady from Canada was there. I knew about the note because when I was in Santa Fe, Michelle Richards had opened a little shop in the Hotel La Fonda. This is 75, 74, 75. So I became friends with him and he said, you know, the note's the way to go and you can take a professional classes. So I got in there and then I met the pay chef of Verger. Mm -hmm. And then from there it went. And Vijay moved me around, and my career was, when I went to visit Vijay, I realized that he had a beautiful atmosphere, he had the whole art world. Yeah. My first interview was out on the terrace with Fulon, Voltaro, uh, Cesar, all these great yeah. artists, they're all buddies of his, and I thought, wow, this is amazing. I don't know anything in America like this, you know? I went after it. Wasn't one of the reasons that you took a, a slightly roundabout way to going after it, as you just said, that it wasn't really a, it wouldn't have been a regular career path for somebody from your background. Is that, is that an accurate statement? I don't know. I wasn't like you described those kids, just those people you saw when you went to look to that culinary school. Isn't that what most people kind of thought of a, a cook in this country as? At that time? I, yeah. I don't know. I didn't really pay attention. I didn't really know that much about it. You know, food was not like a career. Food was, I grew up eating rabbits since I was two years old and watching right. my grandma's skin them at seven. Yep. They had a lot of acres of fruit trees and, you know, we learned a whole plot. Food was a celebration of things that uh, we, in early teens, started to realize other people didn't have, but it wasn't something like I would ever consider a career. In high school, um, I was already cooking, of course, and, um, I became good at it, but it wasn't something that I would consider uh, honorable. You know, it wasn't something I considered expanding or, uh, you know, I didn't feel like I would develop my, mm -hmm. my life working as a chef. The chef's job wasn't very interesting. I worked at this restaurant in Pepe's when I was about 16, I guess, for a summer. And that's the Italian family that owns those restaurants. Uh, they're only in pizza now. Down by Yale, they have this okay. restaurant. Italian family that came here. I was the only one in the whole restaurant that didn't speak Italian. And outside of that, I didn't see anything that 
you know, I thought was compatible to what was put on the plate in my house. So why mm-hmm. would I want to go after the career? Sure. And I think it had a derogative. You know, I didn't think that in those days most of the people who worked in the restaurant were drunks and, you know, had no other choice. And right. And it was long hours and it was like a crazy lifestyle. And, um, a lot of people didn't really respect restaurant people. I think the chef for those people who had high gastronomic experiences in those days, a different place, I'm sure like down in Newport, down in New York City, who knows where. I'm sure the food was elevated um, to a point of prestige and, mm-hmm. and respect. Right. But I didn't. I wasn't exposed to it because I didn't even know it existed. And I didn't really want to be a chef. You know, I was, uh, was into business and I didn't find anything. I love numbers still today. I can sit with my accountants and tell them, you know, look at that. There's something wrong about that. I mean, I, I feel numbers. They stay here. Mm-hmm. I have this uh, connection to numbers. It's always helped me. I don't have partners and I'm my company by myself, so I have to be aware of numbers. However, I never found anything that was uh, a conduit for emotion in business. You felt that lacking as a, even as a young person? I think that even when I was cooking, it seemed easy. I remember when I was 18, they wanted me to be the chef because the Canadian chefs went up to run a new restaurant up on campus. Or 19, I was in my first year of taking a business administration program and uh, the owner was listening to the manager and the manager was telling her but he can really cook and I was thinking uh, what am I doing here this is not what I want so I actually did it so I could put money in the bank and pay school and uh, it was rough because you know I had to, I had to uh, work at night study stay in the afternoon it was uh, really understanding what jamming of day full was <clears throat> you know I was honored that they offered that to me and I felt good about it but it, it didn't really it's not what I wanted but yeah, I think what is the short version of it? Yeah, it wasn't attractive. It wasn't. I didn't think publicly, you know, it didn't have any elevation to it from sure. the point of the arts or culture. Uh, we had more of the arts and culture in the house, sure, um, or out in the farm. Yeah, you know, it was. We we knew what it was like. Um, my grandmother cooked every single day. When she put a plate down, I used to look up at her, and her little boy. I used to feel she ripped her heart out and put it on the plate. And I still remember sitting at this big uh, table with that sheet that used to come out in the middle and you could put the table in and out you know I remember sitting there it was the first time I could sit in the chair by myself I can see her putting down a probably a rabbit dish it was something she used to love she raised a lot of rabbits pheasants and chickens just for cooking yeah and um, that was a spiritual thing almost feeling her energy and her love and sharing it that's why I still do this. Mm-hmm. It's basically um, learning that your friends and have those exposures and sharing it with them and watching them get excited. Mm-hmm. And that's like rewarding. It's like a drug. So you just keep doing it. I've been doing it ever since. And then, um, you know, when I went to France, I remember when I went there, it was feeling like I'd been home because the first languages I ever heard were French because on both sides of my family here, they're from French sides. And the first... And all the celebrations were only in French on both sides of our family. So I remember taking a train over there from spending a summer in Calais, in England, landing in Calais and thinking, wow, I feel really good here on the train, just listening as a 20 or 21-year-old on an adventure. It just all made sense. And then, of course, Virgil was uh, the person that really um, rolled out my future. And mm-hmm. I didn't even know half the time what they were doing. I was just working my, my butt off. And a Vogue magazine, and they wrote a big story about him. I remember he wrote, the hardest working 
young chef or cook that I've ever seen is this American, David Boulay. I don't know how he ever slept, you know, because I would work with his baker at 4 and I'd be there at 7.30 and I would work with the pastry chef in the afternoons when the day goes off and, and he, he just couldn't figure out how I'd sleep and I was basically taking naps and people would play soccer or other things so I'd go take a nap and um, I just, I was just at that point uh, inhaling it like air, everything I could possibly learn. So I was in 77 and then he moved me around, he sent me to Cruz, Bill Cruz went to Robochon, and I went back to Berger, and then Berger brought me to the airport when I was going up to work at Jardet, told me what I was going to find there for cooking. Then Mr. Jardet, after the second week, offered me a visa for two years, but I already had committed to Mr. Berger to open the San Francisco in 84, which was the years before that. So I went back to Berger, worked with him, and then after San Francisco, Mr. Berger said, you know, okay, we're what do you want to do that didn't work out? So I went and worked at Ebola, and then I went to work at Virgil again, and then I spent a little bit more time at Robichon, and then uh, came back to New York, and then, of course, opened the two, and then the sure. late 80s, so I built in 86, opened 87. And um, there are a lot of things that were new at that time. I think Montrachet, as far as I know, I didn't realize it, but I realize it now, is that I think that was the first restaurant with a tasty menu in the United States. Because you had the prefix, mm -hmm. you know, you had to pick one. And we had three tasty menus, because so that's what I wanted to do. Why'd you want to do that? Because I was model. trained that way. Yeah. Even my grandmother's house was always a five or six hour meal. You never ate a plate or anything. Right. It was always like, she bought, they bought land in Jamestown. Yeah. Right on the beach, and they bought a big farm in Woonsocket. So, we wanted fish, I went to Jamestown. When we were eating off the farm, we ate up there. And, you know, I knew what fresh fish was. Because in those days, you know, I think it seems right out. This is in the 60s, right? The early 60s. When I started to understand. You know, and then I never, when I was about eight or nine, my mother was, I was pulling a peach off the tree and took my hand and put another peach and pushed the peach up. And when my hand came down, she said, that's the peach to eat because there was a peach sitting there. And the branch was bending before and I was pulling that first peach. Obviously, it wasn't ripe. I remember eating the peach and all the water everywhere, and then the bees came. My brother had to spray with the water holes because the bees were attacking me with all the sugar from the peach. Mm -hmm. So between those early experiences and watching my mother, grandmother, at the oven basting a rabbit of prunes, standing at the same height as probably the oven door was, and her and her knees basting the rabbit with the tray out, and the raising pan on the tray and watching it and she gave me a chance to do it and I made a fire because I missed the pan completely and that and the peach was probably, you know, I was set this is where you're going you know, cause how could you walk away from that peach experience right. perfectly someone peach that was insane I was trying to eat a crispy peach with no flavor and then learning from her basing those potatoes with the juice from the prunes so the potatoes got golden, golden color and they're almost transparent and they're crunchy and the prunes cooking with the herbs and the rabbit, mm -hmm. you know, the smell. I certainly wasn't inspired by the opportunities of the young people like we talked about a few minutes ago. Sure. Because it didn't exist. And also, where would I find those experiences? Go into a kitchen and try to find a peach like that, deliver it to the restaurant? As a child, if what I've read is correct, when I, again, some of these things I'm asking you, even though I know half the answer, if, if the articles I read are accurate, because I'm doing all history. So I'd like to have it. Well, you know. So I'd like to have it from your mouth. Well, you but, know what Mark Twain said, right? 
What's that? If you don't read the news, you won't be informed. But if you do read the news, you'll be misinformed. <laughs> so that's <clears throat> pretty much how right. I feel about everything I read about myself. So is it true, though, as a child? I mean, you didn't decide to go this route with your life for a long time, but you did have a real... Pa- I read an article where your mother was interviewed and talked about how you would make rose petal, uh, t- petals, flowers, tomato flowers, carve them as, yeah. a, as a young boy at age 10. Is that accurate? Yeah. yeah, I always wanted to do something creative, you know, was he... I didn't know if food was going to be that or not. So that was just one outlet for it as a child. I needed to have something that I could create mm-hmm. and express myself to. You know, I wasn't able to do the music. The dean of music was our neighbor, and I sat on the piano since I was like three years old. And I never could really... I ended up living in her son's house as a teenager or yeah. roommate. And everybody was a musician, but I wanted to learn music. I couldn't do it. I couldn't find a medium that I... You know, the numbers always work for me. Mm-hmm. I can understand things really fast. You know, I always sit still and I'm counting meanings, and, and my gut feeling is usually always right with the numbers. So I, I never denied that gift. Yeah. But it wasn't what I wanted to employ. Right. As, you know, we all have our little gifts. Yeah, I guess so. But I never wanted to be a chef because. Yeah. What is that in those days? Right. You were just cutting those. Do you think there was anything about that time that you grew up in? What's something that's really fascinating to me is there are a lot of people around your age who start cooking at this time in this country <coughs> for, whatever, for different reasons. Prior to this time, people who cooked, maybe it was a hobby or some, you know, something they did in their spare time. It wasn't something you did for a living. You, you know. I'm sure. just wondering if you think there was something cultural about the early mid-70s that freed people up or inclined people to do? I've heard various answers to this question. But, you know, there were people all over this country who made a similar decision to what you did. They took a different path maybe to get to the to become chefs, but they decided to go after that, right? But there's no Internet at the time. There's no chat rooms. There, you guys aren't talking to each other. You know, there's, there's, there are young cooks all over this country who started doing this not knowing that they were part of a larger trend. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, sure. Do you have any insight into what it was about that time? Because this had never happened before in this country. I think that, it, uh, you know, you had Alice Waters and Newsweek in 1973. I remember looking at that. A few years later, you had Pablo Cruz on the cover. Um, time Magazine. Time Magazine, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, there were pockets of sort of uh, eccentrics, you know, opening their own food. Like, uh, I think Joby would have been considered something like that these little oases that people might land into. Uh, people like Mark Miller who decided that, you know, I don't want to be a professor of philosophy. Mm-hmm. You know, start cooking. Uh, I think that was inspiration with Alice, that whole thing back there. I remember when California food kind of made it east. You're talking probably earlier than that there, right? I'm, I'm, I'm talking earlier than that, yeah. yeah. I mean, things that people have said to me are... Um, it was sort of the the tail end of the you know the counterculture era. Um, that um, this was a generation that after college grabbed a backpack and went and traveled around Europe. Yeah, sure, me too. I listened and to that, that turned people on to the food. Yeah. You listen to Jack Kerouac? I know. This lecture to him, Mishner, go waste, young man. One of like little five hundred, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, Evolve into a Vietnam card, draft card, then too. And, uh, you know, it was go find yourself. That was right. Right. So I did that. And I traveled around the States, and I said, uh, no, I'll always come back to this. 
And my mother, who raised nine children, who developed her PhD in early childhood psychology and opened up several Montessori schools, was the same thing. You know, go find what you want to do. Like that was the early seventies. You know, there were some issues then, right? So we're talking uh, rock and roll. We're talking, you know, freedom. Find find yourself before you. And then find out what you're good at. Basically, find out the gifts you have. Yeah. Take an audit. Uh, just like my mother would say, see that little girl over there? Her parents are upset. She doesn't speak four languages yet. And see that little boy? He's, a, you know, whatever. And i got to take him apart and rebuild him up now because they, they have put so much stress on both these two kids. So, yeah, there was definitely this point, do something that you love. Yeah. And, but it wasn't really until I think that that social movement began which would have been, you know, mid-80s. For instance, when we opened Boulay, we had, you know, Deliasis was in there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Kerry Hefferman, although he went to culinary school. Um, you know, you had Dan Barber, you had Rocco, you had all these careers, you had Amy from Amy's Fred. Mm-hmm. You had a whole bunch of people, I can't even remember all the names, but every now and then they surfaced. So, uh, a lot of people that came out of banking, some people came out of pre-med, at least two people had PhDs from Ivy League colleges. We had the ambassador's daughter, France, working in the dining room, a couple broken ballerinas. Uh, you know, it was this eclectic, dysfunctional family. People had no experience in the yeah. restaurant business. I looked one day and I remember it was at least 70% of people that had studied another career or had already worked in another career, mm-hmm. they were all together. That was probably, if you talk to the people that had worked in that restaurant, that was probably the most uh, cohesive of, uh, of a group of people that were searching for something else mm-hmm. and probably the greatest dysfunctional social misfits that I used to call it. But, How so? Know, well, because, How do you mean? You know, because we were, a lot of, not me, but a lot of people were sort of geared into a certain direction and then that wasn't what they wanted, so it was defunct, and now we're all together, and we're trying to build an opportunity for everyone to express themselves, and we right. did. Right. And I think that's that was the success of that restaurant, which made it so strong, is that you had so many people in there that brought in knowledge from other mediums, or other levels, mm-hmm. of either education or mm-hmm. work field, and a lot of times it it would have been just the fact that they had been working where they had expense accounts. Yeah. Were educating their palates in their day job. And that might have been where they started to get into the food. Yeah. Or, like you said earlier, they might have traveled, taken some classes abroad, and realized, wow, this is, it's like David Byrne was saying, this is not your life. No, this is, come back and this is not food. No, it's, uh, right. It's always this, like, wow, what is this? No, this is. So what happens when that realization, uh, when that grasp you, uh, in those days where the people were um, were interested in following uh, that, I guess that well of pleasure. How can I, uh, how can I feel this good about something that I do for work? Right. You know, which was a lot of the '60s and '70s. Yeah. You know, I remember um, really well that period because I grew up on, on campus, right? so UConn was a place that you could feel the student body. 
And the thing that I remember was listening to Mishnah say, "Go." The, the subject was, "Go waste, young man. Go find yourself, and then come back." You know, and then for me, the restaurant business was the medium to travel. I used it, mm-hmm. and I realized I was good at it because I would always get like sort of recognized yeah. more than I thought I would. You know, it's like, that's interesting, but I never really wanted it. You mentioned Vietnam, and it, this has just come up in, in several interviews recently. Um, people saying, you know, Jimmy Schmidt said to me, you know, Andrew, I had to register for the draft, and I started at a very young age thinking about my mortality. Me and, too. And I didn't want to put on a suit and tie and be my parents. Yeah. Me too. I um, I had a draft number, a lottery number that wasn't very good. But then, uh, I think they call it the acceleration of the draft or whatever they call it. It was Nixon, right? So my number was on hold. My brother's number was two years older than me was a higher number, so he didn't have to worry too much about the draft. But my number was not very good. And I think that when I got my number, within a year they had to hold it, and then another year they had to hold it. But I was picking friends up, you know, if you ever saw that July 4th movie with Tom Cruise. Mm-hmm. I went through that. What do you mean you went through that? With buddies who were treated like they were criminals. and Oh, and they came back. Yeah, they were, you know, they would never wear their uniform, that's for sure, and they were handicapped. And they were uh, trying to get him out of these cesspool military hospitals that were worse than even the movie showed. That was a big part of your life. Certainly, you were thinking more about living than, you know, career and everything else. You know, Woodstock, all that. But it was a big part of um, stepping back and, you know, looking at your buddies. and You felt kind of in the middle of um, normal life. And that extreme life, you know, I, I thought, gotta get serious, gotta get serious, too. And, uh, you know, enough of this, like, finding yourself. You know, I'm gonna go study art. And for me, it was to go there, and then I got hooked in in Paris. You know, mm-hmm. It takes us a month being a student there. And, uh, and I, when I worked in Henri Bastel, she was an old Leonese cuisine. It reminded me a little bit of my grandmother's tripe and things like mm-hmm. that. Still wasn't what I wanted to do. Yeah, uh, bistro wasn't interesting me, but it was uh, you know it was the same kind of moment. If you talk to Daniel Blue, he was sitting here a few months ago. Yeah, and um, he was telling the story which I had forgotten. 1981, Jean Pierre Masson, who was the pastry chef of the Moulin Mougin, for many years had moved to the Perigord Park, and he was making cakes for Perigord and Perigord Park with Billy Krauss and uh, what's his name over there. Uh, on 52nd Street, George Bouquet. Mm-hmm. And so he called me one day, and I was in Greenwich, and I was going back and forth to France still, trying to keep the ball rolling. At that time, I had uh, I had thought I would stay uh, as a chef, but I was having a hard time plugging in into the United States what I was learning in France. How do you mean that? Well, we're cooking everything to order, about a minute. The food was totally different. The 30, 40 guys in the kitchen, on 40 covers, come back here, and it's like three guys doing three, four hundred. And it was like, uh, you know, cultural disaster. This doesn't work. You can't, you can't uh, connect uh, from a business point or career point uh, this kind of training yet into here. But those were kitchens say. that were run by French chefs, yeah? Yeah. Here. Yeah. Uh, but... Uh, Anyway, so then Jean-Pierre called me, and that's how I got into New York. He, I, I became the sous chef at the 
Perigora, 1980. And I was still going back and forth. And I went to work at, um, then I went to work at uh, Coke Boss because I wanted to see what was going over there. And I remember Jean uh, Jacques Lachou used to give me my mail from Berger opened all the time. Opened? And, yeah. <laughs> and Berger was still, you know, he, I was still there. I was a student. I'm there. I'm a fireman. Mm-hmm. Bell rings, he calls me. So he wanted me to go back. So I went back there. And then I came back to New York again and I went to work at the Cirque. And I went out in the dining room and I remember Paul Bocuse, Roger, Craig Claiborne, Pierre Frenet, they're all sitting there and Cyril sent me down at the end of the table and Bocuse sitting there and all. And they told me, like they always did, uh, just what you're doing next. And Cyril said, um, you're going to do this. And this being? Going back to Roger and opening okay. San Francisco. So Mr. Bocuse said something and then Berger said very little, like my first interview, was more talking with the artist and him showing my glass and me being nervous and yeah. then Cesar and I became friends because he sitting right here and him filling my glass and then eventually after an hour or so Berger said, okay, tomorrow at 7 o'clock. And then that was the interview and uh, that was in the 70s so it was always a very short moment where Berger was like, I'm in the family. There's no discussion. This is what you're going to do. Right. It's going to be the best thing for you. And uh, you're going to have a good time. You're going to like it. So, okay. Serial said you're going to finish this up and then you're going to go uh, back to Newland. And I went back. I generally loved Serial, but I hated the work environment. In and the kitchen? Yeah, I was, gonna, I, was, I was getting out of the career. And I'm talking to my girlfriend at that time about how... Um, I'm going to go back to school. Mm-hmm. I can't do this. Um, at the Cirque, there were three of us, and Philippe, who was sous chef, and you know, we did 277 covers one night. The menu was an encyclopedia, and uh, if someone sat down and said, can I have Sol Veronique, and it's not on the menu, you got the Dover Sol, and you got a can of grapes, and they make Sol Veronique. And it was ridiculous. Um, you know, you just could never keep up with the amount of volume. Nothing was cooked to order. You had a big bay-marie with ladles. And a lot of things were cooked in advance, sitting up here. And just when I call for it, you threw it on a plate or you threw it on a copper thing and you threw a sauce with it. And out yeah. the dining room with some vegetables or whatever. It wasn't plated food 100% yet. But I remember it was so hard that you never felt you did anything right. You felt that the food was barely sitting on the plate by the time the waiters grabbed it. And, and both there and at the Perigord, I would show both George and Serial things I was learning, had learned. Now at this time, I had realized that the chef that I was working for never even ate in a highly rated restaurant in France, never mind work in one. Mm-hmm. That they had learned how to French cook in New York mm-hmm. from a French group of people that were very focused, very tight, from almost a world fair. And a lot of the restaurants had the same style. If you went to the Grenoble de Colbasque. Colbasque was a little different. But if you went to Pavillon, Le Grenoble, Le Cine, Le Cirque, Le Perigord, they were pretty much all the same kinds of menus, which was that cooking in New York. And the bodies and the amount of people in the kitchen were not at all conducive to me and my group, which we were students of the Nouvelle Cuisine. Mm-hmm. And like Daniel was saying the other night, he was telling everybody that Jean-Pierre and I had planned a luncheon in my apartment. 
and we were going to do this. Um, I had two other French cooks that I had traveled, that I had met in France, that had come through New York. We were working, yeah. they were working. So we all felt that lost. Um, we don't even have a chance to make anything the way we've learned how to make it. So it was, if you're painting from pigment, and then all of a sudden you're painting uh, with a spray can or something, and everything is already laid out. You know, it was a, this is this is really really connected. Now you get to work like this. So um, this is not all you, uh, or who you became, or who you want to be, uh, but it's all you had. Right. It's all there was. So we had a lunch, and I made a puff of fur, and I had great cheese, and you know, Jean Pierre made all this food. And you know, the day before he said, "Yeah, God, I got a friend coming in from." France and can I bring him? I said, yeah, sure, I'm here. I plenty of food. So he brought him in, and that was uh, Daniel Balut. So he came from JFK to my apartment. Yeah. And um, we all were talking, and we were talking about you know about how much there is to do here. Yeah. And uh, Daniel says that was the day that he decided to make his career in New York. How much there is to do? You mean how much work there is to do? Well, yeah. I mean, to there was a gap of 40 years, and how are we going to transfer this? Of eating into what we were taught, nouveau cuisine, right. healthier, cleaner, more detailed, plated food, whole different structure of cuisine. Everything was bourbon, heavy cream, you know, a little puree in bourbon. Now you have watercress sauce, yeah. uh, reduced cream, blah blah blah. Sauces were made. You know, we made we made five gallons of bourbon every day. We used uh, we used several cases of heavy cream, and you know there were stocks cooking in the back, but. You know, we made, we made some good sauces um, from the, the meat sauces that were, you know, connected to sure. gastronomy in France, but pretty much everything was, uh, you know, fast French food, uh, unhealthy, mm-hmm. and people would come to the restaurant designing already their meal, so why would you wear that? Because then they sit down and say, can you have a sauce on the side? Can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do that? And You're talking about, sir? All the French restaurants. All of them. A lot of thoughts on the side. A lot of people deciding how they wanted their French meal right. when they would come regularly because they knew they'd just come eat the richness. Of right. The possibilities, though, were to uh, team up and try to transfer mm-hmm. uh, the cuisine into a different direction. So this was an important connection for you. Yeah, this was in '81, and uh, yeah, there were two other friends that were already there that had um, been exposed to the same kind of work for me. We realized that it didn't exist in New York. That it was a challenge. Do we yeah. accept this? What are, what are we, what are our opportunities? You know, do we want to um, go back to France? People like uh, Jean Pierre. Prior to that, it was the beginning of the second wave. You know, uh, you didn't hear of chefs coming in from Europe. Yeah, uh, for years. You know, in New York. It's kind of like reminding me when I opened Brushstroke 10 years ago, I started to see, and I had to do big lectures in Tokyo and all this stuff, and I started to realize that the Kaiseki chefs would never leave Japan because they don't have the ingredients to cook Kaiseki. Send a chef with a good knife and put him on the coast, and he can show you the art of sushi, and then they can extend that into marinades and grilling Mm -hmm. and stuff, but that's not Kaiseki. Kaiseki is this spiritual connection to Mother Nature and the bounty of Mother Nature almost by the hour. Yeah. And you need these ingredients to cook. I started to see now that the business machine, because when I would come back and forth, mutual training, other company, I'd go there with all these things. We don't have special, we don't have, we don't have, we don't have special, special. Like two months ago, I sat with the mutual training again. They were laughing about how when I went there, now they have all these things and so many things more. Yeah. So 
I was sort of, they kept saying, oh, Mr. Fai, you, thank you, Mr. Fai, you, you were the one that, you know, we, you made us bring these ingredients, and you were the first one, and thank you. But I started to realize that these people were able to produce some future for kaiseki chefs to cook like they do in Japan, also Japan. Mm-hmm. I think that at that point in the early 80s, it was the same deal, you know, that the French were coming here. Uh, not long after that, there was uh, Flying Foods opened up. They were sending food in from Ranjis. So I opened the Maurice Hotel over there when I was in Sandrant. And that was with Christian Duvivier, and so things were starting to happen. And I think you're right. That day, we realized that we can help each other. That there's a huge opportunity here, and we can uh, develop what really would be a career that we would be proud of, that we'd be happy yeah. in, and share uh, this elevated French food with uh, an audience uh-huh. that knows it. Yeah, they go to France all the time. Right. And uh, all they do is talk about those experiences. But don't forget, the the owners were front-of-the-house people now. We're not, not, no chefs were owning restaurants yet. Right. But she was probably one of the first ones with all his partners. And that was Cote Placid, was the first twist of uh, cooking well, a little bit differently. Chefs weren't also weren't, I'll get to this in a minute, but it was also one of the things that kind of happens during the story I'm telling you is chefs were largely anonymous still. Yeah, sure. Right? It was all about the yeah. impresario in the front of the house. It was right. about the dining room. Right, so even us to go out in the dining room was very unusual. You know? Yeah. I remember when I went out to sit in the dining room with sick, I felt very uncomfortable out there. Like, the customers didn't come in the kitchen. Yeah. But, so you're right, that's a turning point. 1981, there we are. Bunch of young chefs trained by Nouvelle Masters thinking, there's a calling here, let's see here if we can do this. And then, you know, when I opened Montrachet, because I went back to France and I had I worked with Robochon again. Yeah. And I worked with Verger. Uh, I met Jardet at Le Cirque and he came to me and he said to me, Do you want to visit us? You know, so I was like scooped up. He saw what I was trying to do. Who's Danielle like when you first met him? When he first showed up? In my apartment? Yeah. I liked him. How did he strike you? What was Danielle Ballou at that age like? We were, all, we were all the same. We were free spirit, full of enthusiasm, over-educated for our job, uh-huh. um, clearly optimistic, full of generosity, very generous, generous guy. Um, I know him then. I mean, when we were together, we'd, I told them a story, too. I told him, these people, uh, that when I see Danielle, even now, I read because he had just told his story, and I said, wow, that helps me explain how I want to say this story. And I told him that, you know, when I see Danielle now, like we're in this room, yeah, I go back to that point of being 20-something years old, full of enthusiasm and power and knowledge and gener- generally feeling that we're going to change the world, you know, for cooking, not with any kind of presumption or arrogance, but... Uh, there's so much to share, yeah. And we had our bag full to hand out, yeah. And that bag, he had his, I had mine, and we were so excited about uh, the opportunity to express uh, what those people had taught us, because we're both, you know, from the Nouvelle Cuisine, mm-hmm. and that youthful idea that we're not going to accept any distraction or 
uh, a challenge that's mm -hmm. going to defer us from our goals. We're going after this. It's ironic that you think that <clears throat> where he ended up doing it. Yeah, my apartment was on 65th Street between Park and Madison. Okay. It was right across the street from his restaurant. Uh-huh. A little studio above there. Yeah. And uh, it is ironic that it ended up from that lunch that his flagship was across the street. I mean, it's pretty funny, these things, how it worked out. You know, and then as things evolved, when I opened Munch Shea, he had found a baker that they didn't want to buy his bread, but he thought it was really good. So I decided to buy his bread when I opened Munch Shea, and then um, he introduced me to T-Rod, mm -hmm. and um, somehow he had heard that Mr. T-Rod was looking for a chef American who was growing uh, French food, and he was still working in hotels, and he knew that um, I was in construction 86, so he introduced me to T-Rod, and I got the first French stove, modular square stove in the country, uh, delivered in 86. It was 17 feet long and eight, nine feet wide. It looked like a satellite, flat, no one saw anything like that. And I had to do a dinner, but I got a $125,000 stove for $7,000, and Danielle turned me on to that man because he didn't, he didn't have an opportunity, and. And I had to had all that noise from Montaché, so this Mr. T-Rod was very excited to want to work with us because he wanted to get, mm -hmm. and he thought, well, it's going on his own now. This is a turning point. And everybody's coming to that kitchen, including Lacoste. I remember him saying, that's the oven I wanted. They didn't understand that. So, so we went from the lime cooking yeah. to module. Yeah. That was 86, 87, yeah. and everything was still lying down. You know, you got to look down the line, you yeah. know where you are, okay. walking across, you don't even talk. Well, no one talked over there. Some lady did a thesis at Columbia on the choreographing movement, and she stayed one month with us. She did an operating room, she did a ballet, she did us, and she said it was amazing that we didn't bump into each other, because I had uh, 29 people in the kitchen then. Is that right? Yeah, and um, no one really talked. Everything moved along. You know, we, we were up to like 70%, 80% menus, yes. 90, 98 at lunch, and in those days... Um, he created a monster because I would write on the bottom menu, chef special menu on request. It wasn't like there was any special fireworks. They thought harder on their menu. It's just that I had little bags of special things that helped yeah. us to celebrate the tasty menu. So I would do that. And how developed in the special menu was that people like Goldman Sachs. And I was feeding people four or five times a week and uh, sometimes twice a day. So they don't look at the menu. Say, tell us you have to cook. We got this many time here. Let's see where we are and let's go. So then the menu rolled into Mr. Janet's menu, Mr. Creamer's menu, Mr. Smeal's Mr. menu, Mr. Alphonse's menu, this person, that person. And we knew what they liked and what they didn't like. And then within a year, this special menu came out because I had always had stuff ready for them because I didn't know when they were coming in. Right. They would always keep tables. Sometimes they didn't want to have a menu. But I became a victim of a monster that I had created by saying, we'll cook for you. What do you mean you became a victim? Well, can you imagine? Five times a week? Why are you cooking after the third week? David Willey became this nut who would pull things out of the air spontaneously. And I had to go to the market to scoop up as much as I could, keep looking for esoteric stuff. Just to keep it fresh. Keep an inventory of things that are different that I could cook with uh, for many different kinds of palates and different kinds of wine drinkers and keep them enthusiastic and certainly I never wanted to hear them leave the restaurant saying gee the last tasting menu was better than this one so 
really worked hard on uh, that and uh, you know it was uh, the menu which became the special sense menu was very hard for me because yeah. uh, you know it was 14 courses then yeah 15 courses and uh, you know I have the board full of special menus then tasty menus and I was cooking most all the fish myself and you know the captains come okay what they have like that okay fine we had no we had notes on them I know Miss Queen doesn't like artichokes and mushrooms and we started to um, store all that and I had a sous chef that remembered everything everything I couldn't remember anything but he would remember everything what's the and, chef? Uh, Jay Cohen mm-hmm. and uh, he had a degree in botany master degree came to the back door when I was in construction so they wanted to be a chef do you have any experience? no it's alright I'm going to teach you to start canapé you work from canapé to sous chef and um, very smart guy very funny guy but he remembered everything, and so, you know, this eclectic uh, group of people, my job was to give them a key, open up their gifts, and how do they employ their gifts in this environment. And then how do you harmonize it all? Yeah, and that was yeah. my job. And um, it worked pretty well because, you know, we had some good people. Bill had incredible social skills. Kirsten, who just texted me in a minute, now works at Wegmans. was 18 years, she had a degree in engineering, mm-hmm. nuclear engineering. She worked at IBM. We had, we had, there were only probably uh, the family, which still works for me, 26 years now, a whole group of Dominican people are still here, and Brian B. Strong and Rocco, they were roommates, or a couple of them were roommates at BU, uh-huh. and I think they were going to school. You know, then I had other people, like I brought over Kurt Grudenberger, Surreal, uh, I brought in... Surreal Anique? Yeah, yeah. Okay. A lot of those guys that did their visas. Wasn't an Eric Repair work for you yeah, for about Eric, nine months Eric, in there? Uh, Eric, Scott Bryan? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the guy up at the ESCA, David. Oh, Pasternak. He worked on the fish Yeah, Frank Kostranovo worked for you? Yeah. I can't even remember all the people that worked in, in that restaurant. Even the middle one now. So many people worked and uh, they come in now. They're different. They have beards and stuff. Sure. I recognize the voice, but you know, I was really focused, so I didn't have, uh, you know, this, this, this vacuum of my energy to try to keep the balls in the air with these people that were eating regularly put me in a world by myself you know I was uh, but did you not feed the fire did you not the rep, the reputation is that you thrived on that that you I loved it that's people's impression mm-hmm. that that's how you mm-hmm. liked it that you loved that I, I couldn't um, I mean, you referred to it as a monster a minute ago but that was well yeah I mean it was it was exhausting yeah. you know I'd get out of work and be crushed Spent. And you know, um, was that because you were as mentally exert, uh, mentally wiped as you were yeah, physically? Yeah, yeah, I was. I had to try to do it as best I could and be at least as good as the past. Yeah, but try to do it better. All of a sudden, now we've got to the skill. You're a captain. We trained ourselves to have incredible ways of flushing information in seconds. Okay, menu. This meal wants me. Okay, <clears throat> who's eating what? Okay, well, where are they at? What's yeah. So, where are they going? How am I going to cook for them? All right, this is the menu. We start to go. We're watching how the other people are doing. We have to jump around the fire a lot at this time. Mr. Smeal paying the check. All these guys? Yeah. They're not as happy as him. Even he knows they're not at his level, but if they're not as happy as him, he's not going to be happy. He's watching our efforts. Mm-hmm. We're transforming these people's idiosyncrasies as we sure. go through the night. We're learning about their textures and this. Forget about their own shellfish or that. 
We're learning more about them. Maybe they like their fish caramelized in the pan and versus cooked on yes. the bone where the skin rolls off and it's very soft, no sugar, but different flavors. Mm-hmm. Right? Doing pumam and collagen, you feel. But the other way is crunching their sweet by sauteing. So all these variables, captains are tuned in now. So the menu's changing for a few people. They got their fish this way, that fish this way. Now Mr. Mill sees them having fun, he's happy. Now that exercise, a lot of people didn't, didn't want to get involved in. I think I accepted it too because I opened the way downtown yeah. off the beaten track. And I thought, you know, I don't have the mainstream audience. I better do some of these things. Yes. Plus, I wanted to show them what I was taught. Got to see more and more people come in and regularly. And that monster grew. But, you know, it was nice when you have four or five tables. But now you got 15, 20 tables. Yeah. All different times. All different menus. Yeah. Those guys that were in that kitchen would look at the board. How the hell is he doing that? You know? And, you know, I was just, during the day, I always had a couple ideas. I was dreaming about food. You know, I'd get out of bed, run to the kitchen, go home, be in bed and out in a couple of minutes. And I never took time off. I was working, uh, I used to look at it, I was working uh, about 100 hours a week. And uh, I used to sleep through Sundays, you know. And then <clears throat> I changed a little bit when I started to date Bernadette Peters because she was teaching me a little bit about how, you know, she would work a show like me, but she would say, you know, you need balance. You need to have, you have to restore. Yeah. And so I started to think about how I would do that. And I started to drift a little bit towards the end there. But, you know, when I closed in 96 there, the lease was so high, um, I, I didn't, uh, I was kind of, I was wasted. I was, that was it for me. Yeah. It was done. Which everybody thought I should be putting in a mental hospital because why would you close a restaurant that had that point was turning away a few hundred people every day and would fill up, you know, when we opened the book four months, we would fill up in five days and poor reservation people would yell at you told me to call the first Right. Week. And those are the weeks I used to always feed them myself special meals because I knew they'd get beaten up. I really wanted to get out of the business. It felt so good too that I was going to get out of the business. Uh, I was basically fried, and I needed my time. But then I thought, if I'm going to come back, I want to open up a demonstration. I want to bring friends in right. from all over there and spend some time with us, because Robochon came, Vaucruz yeah. came. They loved it. They loved cooking, meeting people. We learned from them. And I had already set up two things from the visitor, ingredients and technique. If we can learn about a rice, then we can have a better rice. If we learn about a technique, that they bring that rice out, a cultural personnel, we'll take those two, we'll put in our educational, our program of how we approach food, and that won't be copying, but that will make us smarter, Mm -hmm. and we'll expand. This is great. And on Saturdays, I got somebody told one of my waiters that they used to do Saturdays. I used to do Saturdays market, and it started in 89, and I'd bring them there, and we'd cook together, and then they'd have a lunch. And that was like booked a year, and I stopped it because customers would yell at me, because they were spending a lot of money and they couldn't get in, you know, and they, were, they literally were, like, abusive. Uh, why I wouldn't take their wife or something, because I didn't want to go over 12. I couldn't manage it. It wasn't yeah. in the kitchen. But we were talking about something, and then we got into, we went from the tasting menu, and we went to all this stuff, and, you know, and the tasting menu was a vehicle for me to find out who are you, and who are you, you, or who, who are you, you, the guest? You. We're like, who are you? I want to cook for you. 
I don't want to waste my time doing something you don't want. So how would you discern that? The tasting menu. It fleshed out everything I need to know about you. I knew, I used to tell people I knew more about my customers than their wives, their mothers, and the CIA. Based on, the, the, uh, the, based on how the plates came back? Or absolutely, how would you, absolutely. That's how you could tell. Right. I went not long ago, because I work at Wegmans. Uh, a couple of years ago, they had these geniuses come in and talk to upper management. And I didn't stay at a whole conference, but they, they lecture all over the world, companies like Wegmans. And the first thing they came up with was called a WIG, W-I-G, a wildly important goal. You come up with these numbers of wildly important goals. People usually come up with 10 of them. The ones that have 10 never get anything done. The one with five on the list, they never get anything done. The one with three, maybe they're going to get one done. The one with two, probably going to get at least one. The one with one, they're going to get it done, and it's going to stick, and it's going to grow. It's going to be followed through to a point where it's part of what they do now. Now they can build on that to a second one. That was the introduction. The second one was, um, you know, you get into your whirlwind life yeah. and the wildly important goals are out the window. Right. Because everything is. So I sat with him after because he came to the Wakeman Tailings. They said, you know, I'm a chef in New York. We didn't know each other. So we started talking. And he got a little closer. And next thing we're, uh, hustling. we're talking like, like this. And mm-hmm. I say, wow, I'm really enjoying your thing, you know, and it's so interesting because you're making me realize that um, we were just getting into before lunch break was, I forget what the second group of letters was, but it was basically a measurement. Yeah. Know where you are, which wildly important goals. And that that measure is very important, more than the goal itself. Hmm. And I said to him, wow, you know, I didn't realize it, but since 85, I've been looking at the plates coming to the kitchen because that was a barometer of where I am with a customer and or with my kitchen. I can't cook everything myself, so I'd go investigate. Maybe the sauce too salty or whatever. I'd check things. Maybe the yeah. product came in. The salmon was dry, you know, or they played with me, a different salmon. I find, wow, okay, we're to cook this differently. Or the recipe changes uh, based on re- preference. But when the plate was empty and when I get it so I can almost put it on the shelf, then, okay, I go in that direction. I recorded a lot of this mentally and in my mind, and I realized with him that I had two or three other measures that I was sharing with him. He became so interested to the point where they were like, oh, Mr. Smith, you have to go now. You know? Right. And I realized that I had set myself up since Moshe to be vulnerable, which a lot of people don't want to do. I had already realized that from a point of how my brain functions, I, you know, I race motorcycles. I am not mm-hmm. afraid of being like Franz Klimmer and I are friends, and he's the craziest skier. We used to always say, if you're not on the edge of the table, you're taking up too much room. So he skis the same way. He never really gets in trouble because he's always in trouble. And that's how I race motorcycles. I realized when Lyle Lovett and I would ride, he would crash. He has better form than me, but when he gets in trouble, he can't recover. I'm always half crashed, so I don't mind. I don't break a bone. I've never broke a bone. I've had crashes that were insane, and I ride much crazier than him. Mm-hmm. So in in a way, if that's an extension of who I am, then I have the organic matter to be spontaneous. And I watched Mr. Jade too. I loved his spontaneous move, and he and I he got into my head. So I realized, okay, I have the capacity. Now, how do I develop some relationship? I can't see them. How do I do this? I had to change my staff. Like some lady in Connecticut, I was doing a charity not long ago. She was an old lady. She came to me. I sold my company in your first restaurant. Do you still have that service? You know, 
I remember we were having a tasty menu. My husband and I always choose that. And there was a lady that wasn't touching her food. And all of a sudden, a waiter bent down to her ear and said something. And within a minute or so, another plate was placed in front of her. And she, she, and she said to me, later, the captain said, excuse me, is there something else the chef could cook for you? And I told her, yes. This was, and so I was there. Before they even finished that course, she was catching up with a new course. That's the strength of the dining room that I had set in place. So th- that that is a little bit about what was happening in the 90s. And then, you know, I, I bounced all around. But um, uh, what was the last question you asked me anyways? Uh, the last question I think I remember was... Uh, when was the moment that uh, people felt they were coming into this profession? And no, that wasn't my last that question. Was, okay, what was the last question? <laughs> that was question? my first question. Okay, what was the last one? <laughs> I remember the other one. Um, I couldn't tell you my last one offhand. I was, I was, I was going freestyle. We didn't really touch on it. You know, you spent time all these great restaurants you worked in in France. What was your experience like over there as a young American who wasn't fluent when you started doing it? First of all. I had a French name. Mm-hmm. That helped a lot. I didn't realize it. Um, Just the mere fact of the name. Yeah. I could I could, um, I could, understand anything anybody was telling me in French. My French was probably even better than it was now from a grammar point, you know. So communication wasn't a problem. Um, probably the real benefit was that I didn't, I didn't really... Um, get into the restaurants on my own. I started only with Verge. Mm-hmm. And they put me everywhere. I worked my ass off. Um, always liked to work, you know, I grew up on a farm, I wasn't afraid of hard work, so I would be there. I would be with Bocuse at five o'clock in the morning to go to the markets with him because I asked him if I could. Just the two of you? Yeah. And we, well, we used to go somewhere else first and I would teach English to someone else at that time. What? His son. His oh, uh, Jerome? Yeah. Oh, really? He on my lap, and I would read read books to him in English. Okay. On the way to the market. And then you go to the market? So market. And, and would you do the whole mashan thing yeah, and all that? the whole yeah. thing. And then I'd help um, unload. And sometimes Mr. Bocuse would say, um, oh, David, put this in the, in the back of the car. And we'd go up to the winery. And uh, right. at 9.30, uh, Bocuse and I, I met one day, we were in the uh, one of the Beaujolais, and we were up there, and wine pickers were going to come up around 9.30. They had their lunch, really, right? So, And uh, Mr. Bocuse and I were making a fire in an oven in the back, and I was putting the paper, and he was laying in, and he said, put his hand in the oven. I don't need thermostat. I don't need thermostat. I feel heat, you know. And I was like, wow, that's cool. And I, I just found a knife he gave me upstairs uh, on the way there that morning to cut the ham, you know, uh-huh. the Bocuse written on the wood. I don't know how it surfaced, but... So, um, and then he, he one day asked me to have lunch with him, and uh, he asked me, so, if you want to explain the style of Girardet cooking, please do. But I tried, you know, and I told him what I saw there and how How would you have expressed that? What was the spe- So many people ta- named that restaurant as a... Girardet? Yeah. And people of wildly different... You know, Jonathan Waxman talks about it in reverential terms. I mean, stylistically, you guys couldn't be more. Yeah. I mean, it was purity, simplicity, uh, out-of-minute execution with details that a lot of people didn't even see. Remember those little dots? Yeah. Well, 
other people don't even see them. And when you make them bigger, they can see them. But, right. You know, some people can see those dots as blow up. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my first day, I was taking the skin off the tomato, and he came to me and said, uh, you didn't uh, didn't talk to your tomatoes enough. Then he walked away, and I was like, wow. I touched them. It felt like this. I think he wanted just one second earlier, or maybe he wanted more massive ice and water together, or maybe I put too many in the water. But he still wanted them a little. I only had them in there for like 50 seconds, but maybe... I could have done a better job and I was like wow I didn't know what it meant so I called some friends in New York asking what that friends who had worked for him or uh, I forget who I called it was some chef then that one of my friends who was in New York that worked in many restaurants and I said what do you think this means and what was the answer because you no, I, you very famously have used this term with your cooks yeah he uh, he never answered me but you started using it yeah what does it mean to you that you got to pay attention don't sleep. You know, I tell a lot of cooks, uh, you're not talking to your fish, you know. You don't pay attention right. to everybody. The variables are amazing. You know, you... And I had already... I worked in sous vide in the 70s, you know, so I had learned temperature. I had learned these variables that yeah. are un- unbelievable. Nobody, no one really knew them then, you know. Yeah. Um, a lot of the chefs didn't work with sous vide. When I worked at Chaman, it was so primitive with the rack of lamb and a bag with a sugar thermometer and a boiling pot, you know. And, um, but the details I always felt, you know, were interesting to me. I, I felt very comfortable with them and I looked for them and I see, I still see things that I wish people would see, but no one sees. So I felt in one second, um, I was embarrassed and I felt, wow, I got to do a better job. And, uh, you know, I tightened it up. Virgil told me a story one day with Picasso, he told me many times a story, but apparently he, um, he was frustrated. He had started his restaurant. Had you know, I guess he had one star or something. He was telling Mr. Picasso and the way all that um, he felt frustrated that he can't think his next direction of food. He wants to create something different. He can't think of where it is. And Picasso really let him have it. Like, who do you think you are? That you think you're gonna think out creativity? Who are you? And just. Uh, Creativity doesn't work that way. You have to make a hundred things and 99 are going to be in the garbage. It'll be one of the most ugly things you ever did. And one is going to be beautiful. Unless it just comes to you, right? And then he didn't say that. He said that you have to keep working until you get to a point where 99 are now great. And you're going to live there. And the water is going to run clear or something. And last night I was working, uh, watching... uh, you know, because when I was at Bernadette and I spent time with him, he wrote Sunday in the Park with... Sondheim? Sondheim. Yeah. And he was talking about how he was being interviewed, you know, and there's one point where he's saying, you know, you, you just have to do it. And creativity only comes when you do it. Well, that's sort of what that whole play's about, right? Right. In a way. Yeah. Right. And, um, and he was saying it his way, and I was saying, wow, Nicole, listen to that. That's what Vijay <laughs> told me in the 70s, you know, so... Um, I've told many people that story, you know. And so Vijay told me his feeling, Mr. Jade would tell me, um, no, basically things like this, no substitute for accurate measurement. Mm-hmm. And these are very personal moments that uh, they'd share with me. I think that they share a lot with me because I was obsessed. You know, I was the vacuum cleaner of knowledge. I would do anything. 
they would see me in the morning. They'd see me at 12 shining the top of the stove, still sweating. You know, they, mm-hmm. it was like, how does this guy do this? You know, and then they would move me. Like I was talking to Guruji Jalu about Shaman. I had read something about him. And uh, on a Saturday afternoon, they tell me, because he had spoke to Mr. Paul. Yeah. And they said, uh, you work tomorrow. Because open Sundays, right? Seven days. Paul Cruz says the restaurant's designed to be open, not closed. So he opened seven days. But he said to me on Saturday, you work tomorrow, but you're going to get out a couple hours early, so you finish at nine or something. You go home, you pack, you get to TGV, you go to Paris, you start at Wibbershaw at seven o'clock Monday. That was the way it was. So I had like 18 hours to get my life in a different world. And I did, and I was waiting at the gate, yeah, at the address for the first guy to come in to introduce myself. But, um, you know, to get back uh, where we were, you said, let's get back to the market uh, a minute ago, and I... I was talking about, yeah, I, I would write checks, I would sit with those guys, I would meet with many people like Rick and Franca, and I would go through the seed catalogs, and I would say, oh, I know what that's like, we don't have that here, um, yeah. think you can grow that? Yeah, if you pay me. This was when? This was when you were where? 87. So when you first opened your place? Yeah. I think I was the only one going to the markets then. I couldn't understand it, why people weren't going to the markets, but people would pick up the phone, you know, and order stuff. And what about, I there were specialty suppliers, too, so, but... But I heard you also used to take your, you'd get a, a van or a bus and take your 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 crew out to yeah, farm visits? Yeah, Capelands and, you know, Adele Simmons wrote 55 books on herbs and things. A brilliant woman, lived well into the 90s, had a 100-acre art farm up yeah. in Coventry. Um, Why would you do that? You thought it was important for them to I, see where it came from? I wanted them to, uh, you know, get some fresh air. Uh, I really... You know, why do you do all these things? Huh. Do it because you're sharing. You're sharing something that you like, and you think they're going to like it. They loved it. Uh, they still talk about it. Yeah. I found the whole... No, it's come up in several interviews. ...pictures the other day of all them. They were young-looking, you know, all hanging out. Wow, look at that person. Where they end up? You know, they're all still somehow connected to food, either writing or food retail or nutrition degrees or things. I just wanted them to understand <coughs> some of the things that I grew up in. Yeah. That were important to me. There were my layers, um, like David Johansson. I used to talk about that. You know, every layer is on another layer and on another layer and on another layer. Never look at a layer like it's a bad thing of your life because it's the next layer is going to bloom in that layer. And then you know, I used to talk about these. You know, he is right. David Johansson. I even know who Buster Poindexter is. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> these are all buddies, and you know, they were always. I, I never really got. I'm into a huge this. David Johansson fan. I never found myself hanging out with. Chefs in my was my next question for in you in my world. You know? Yeah, why? I read somewhere you said you'd rather hang out with a potato farmer. I did. I did. I said that. Um, I didn't mean that disrespectful. It's just oh, that, I didn't take know, it disrespectfully. I, don't, I learned from them um, about something that was a life that we need to know more about because we are we are supported by them. They are a source of um, our. If we do have success for our customers, and that relationship, um, you know, can only evolve and strengthen, and it can enhance everything we do by having these relationships. Mm-hmm. I used to take my guys fishing boats too, uh, professional folks. I used to work on them. That's why I wrote Dayboat in 1987, mm-hmm. um, because in Chatham the boats are going to be back because the sandbars, you know, you can't 
if you miss the second uh, rise, you'll you're gonna the tire will have keep you out, and you yeah you know you don't in those days even those days you caught your catch already, so you came back in, and I used to work on those boats, and I lived on I lived all year round a couple of times on the Chatham, and you know growing up also in Newport, yeah, uh, in Jamestown there, and it's good to see it was. Something we did for money as teenagers, you know, we made really good money. It was hard work, but I certainly understood what a day boat was. And when I came to New York, I, I really felt that in the early days, New Yorkers didn't really have fresh fish. Yeah. I didn't really think they knew about fish. I was really surprised. And so we would we would send our own truck, which you probably heard, right, for mm-hmm. seven years, twice a week. Yeah, we did all those things because they could all understand it. I mean, it's basically an extension of what they do during the rest of the week. So they have a lot to talk about with their customers, too. And... They were all into it. I could tell they were. And I was always surprised. Sometimes I'd have a bus that wasn't enough. It's call and get eight more cars. So after a while, I'd have two, two Greyhound buses. You mean for these visits? Yeah, they all come with their day off. They all come. Yeah. Wow, you guys love each other that much. Huh? Okay. It's good. You bring your girlfriend, your wife, your sister. Fine. Bring your kids. I don't care. People would do that? Yeah, everybody. You know, we'd stay the whole day and... People would be passed out on the bus riding the way back, and, and you know, everybody got to know each other. It was a cultural experience of enjoying each other's efforts at a celebratory level and getting some downtime to really participate with each other and get to know each other away from the intensity of what we had built sure. as a team. Sure. And, and celebrating... I wanted to celebrate everyone as a team because without all of them, we would be nothing. Sure. And they always knew how important every one of them was. When I had a big meeting, I always made the dishwasher my focus. I would compliment the dishwashers. And I would tell them, have you guys noticed that how much better now they're changing the water, motorcycles, you see how we don't have to clean the spots. And isn't that great now? We don't have to waste time. You don't have to worry about putting glass down. Right. And let's thank the dishwashers. We'd start with them. They'd be sitting here. So happy, you know. Right. And recognized everybody would look at them, and so then we'd go through the whole team, and you know, everybody knew that we were all dysfunctional family, yeah. but we all were based on success of each other. And there yes. was nobody there that was more important than anybody else. Right. And so when we humbled ourselves down, you know, we all uh, helped each other build ourselves up, and it was really amazing how they all helped each other. Did you used to take? I I think I remember hearing you used to take people down to Chinatown. Oh, all the time. Yeah. All the time on the way to the fish markets. Uh, we go to Chinatown. Um, usually, the uh, dean of Chinese culture would organize an event. Now, my clientele do. Yeah. We just did it not long ago. We had the same kind of event. But on the way to the market, I used to take them all to the market. And so we go there, we'd eat um, Chinese banquet. And I'd bring wine. No would let me bring the wine. No, we have some wine. Sometimes we went to the market a little south. But uh, we'd walk down to the market and then, uh, you know, we'd show everybody what's going on. They'd yeah. see new things. So, Live turtles and eels and snakes and all right. that stuff, and then go home and it was great. I mean, everything that we could do, the whoever wanted to come and these things, because um, those days I ride my hog down there two or three times a week, and I was always scuffling through boxes because yeah. I needed stuff to cook if I saw you all the time. So, yeah, a lot of things like that happened. Um, why did we do them? I think it was a question. Why not? It was things that I was proud of, things that helped me get where I was. You know, I'm always amazed at hearing stories about how much time people put in at other restaurants and they didn't get any help. I, n- I never understood that. What do you mean, how much time they put into other well, restaurants? Well, not long ago. I was in Paris with my wife and a guy that was walking, come up, said hello to me. I was outside of Delaware buying some copper. And I'm not going to say where, but one of the top restaurants, he had been there for five or six years. 
And he said, I'm trying to find a job. I said, really? Didn't they set you up? And no. I said, that's strange. I didn't want to ask anything else. I wanted to get moving with my wife. And I saw, I wrote two or three of my French Parisian friends for restaurants names down. And um, I saw him again before I left. And it's weird how I saw him, but he came up and said, you know, thank you, I'm all set now. He got a job. He was, uh, was back looking for a job in Paris. Yeah. And I said, wow, why don't you, why don't they, you know, because everywhere I worked, they sure. set me up. I sure. learned that. Sure. I would mention what was shown. Next thing you know, I'm going to work there two months later. Right. You know, they were paying attention. They were, they were grooming my career. And so I thought I'm supposed to do that. Yeah. And I did. Yeah. I never thought consciously like this. Yeah. I'm supposed to do it. Right? Yeah. You're supposed to do it. Right. They did it for you. Right. So you do it. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's the profession. Yes. And I had learned what the profession was from those people that are in France. And it's a lot more than uh, serving yourself. You know? Yes. It's like you got to, this is it's a living thing. It's, yeah. You know, you're, profess, you're professing that you're a professional, that you're doing something that can't be any error. Yeah. You're a professional. And what does that mean? You know? the whole body of things that you sure. expose yourself through. So the more we all are professional, the more we're all going to get richer. And I, I didn't, I never really thought about it. No one's ever asked that to okay. me before, but they did it for me, so I thought it makes sense. Yeah. I still do it. I just sent one guy to Spain. You know, I sent a lot of guys around, and sometimes they didn't seem grateful about it, you know, and they didn't certainly return things, but sometimes, um, you know, I took it for granted. 95% or more very respectable and I still see them now and sure now. a good example would be like Cesar when he came I met him at True because Richard Melman asked me to help out there a couple of times and he understood what we were cooking and I went out to help him and and then uh, Cesar cornered me to walk in and said I really like what you're doing can I come work in New York okay fine come one day if you want make sure you're all set up here though and he came and worked at Danube and then you know I took him to Japan two or three times and I mm -hmm. said uh, Spain, and I set him up at all the top restaurants. I paid his whole two months over there. And, you know, I never thought about not doing that stuff. But why I would do it is because the guy's got talent, mm -hmm. creative talent. And, you know, I never thought about it like uh, a lot of people would ask contracts, you know, we're going to send you over, you got to stay a year or so. You want to leave, go, you know, it's a transit business. I moved around. How are you going to really be part of our team if you're not happy part of our team? So those kind of things are just the example was set for me. Yeah, I honor it. Yeah, and I still honor it. Yeah, my whole career was the generosity of these masters and friends. Yeah, and I would never not do what they did for me. Right. Anyway. I go at it with the purity, and a lot of people don't know me because they read, like you said a while ago. I don't know if it's true, but I read this. I'll sit and hear people talk, even back in those days before the blog. Yeah. I saying, really? Well, that's not true. Let me tell you what really happened here. People get an image of yeah. what they think. You know, um, I think that people used to always think that I was um, a tyrant, I used to hear. Tyrant? I don't know. If I'm telling you after 20 times how you got to do something right, that I've already made those mistakes that I don't want you to make, because yeah. the customer's going to suffer, and it takes me 20 times. Right. Yeah. I'm not going to be too pleasant. Yeah. You know? But, I never uh, heard that, by the way. Well, I used to hear that. I heard it was stuff. very hard to keep up with your spontaneity. That's the big thing I've heard, even from really good people I perceive as really good cooks. I still 
I don't know how I do that. You don't know how you do it. I don't know how I do it. But do you know that it's hard for people who work for you? Yeah. Have you heard that? Some guy came in not long ago, sat over there, and he had eaten and had his wife out there, and his wife met a girlfriend, so he came in and he said, just want to tell you, he was here three years ago. to get work in California. He said, you know, since I left here, I still don't know how you do it. I don't know how. I want to be like you. How do I get to the point where I can do these things? I watch you. And how do you, how do you do these things? How do you come up with these ideas? No cook ever came to me and sat with me, confronted me on that, and I I didn't know how to answer it. But I said to him, uh, you know, I don't know. Food tells me what to do. You know, just look at it and says, hey, I'm over here. You know, take me. And I, <laughs> can I ask you a strange question? When you say, but when you say that, what do you? I mean. You, you, when you, it, can you even put words to it? No. Like when you look at your mise en place and see what you have to draw from, does it just, is it almost like, you know, writers talk about a writer's high, right? A writer's high is you're working on some fiction, you get on a roll, and when it's over, you almost don't remember doing it. You look down and there's three pages of great prose. Is it like that? I don't remember half the stuff I do. I don't know, you know, you gotta, I think, I, you know, I walk around, I thank God sometimes, you know, I sit there. And I'll walk away and I'll just say, you know, to myself, I'll just, I'll just thank God, you know? Yeah. To say, um, yeah, where'd that come from? Does it just, does it feel just, I mean, it must, I assume it feels like a gift. Yeah, it is a gift. I mean, you worked hard, but at some level you have... Well, I made a lot of mistakes. Right, but I mean, there's... You're one of these... to the point where I don't make them anymore. You already figured out before I even know what to do. It's a very small group that can do what you're describing. People talk about Pierre Gagnier the same way. Yeah, I know. That he can just... Yeah, he's spontaneous. Yeah. There's not a lot of people that get discussed that way. Maybe they don't accept it, that they... But don't forget, I laid out a blueprint. I laid out a design that taught me that. No, I mean, the people are rigid out there. Yeah. I went not long ago. Nicole wanted me to take her to some of the restaurants around, and so we were celebrating a couple of things, and I asked for a special menu at a couple of restaurants, even though it was in advance, and everybody's eating the same food I was eating. I didn't see anything that was different. No one's going to sit here and see any dish that's in the dining room. for a special menu tonight. I'm going to do things based on whatever I got in there. Maybe I'll know if you've ever eaten here before. If mm-hmm. you've never eaten here before, I may do a couple of things at a student's year, but... If you have history with me, you're not going to eat the same dishes again. I love the challenge. Yeah. The growth is accepting it and getting through it. And then after, stronger. Yeah. You know, but to compel the customer, if you lay out the structure, the customer trains you. Like, I've trained now 25 years, right? So, do you know how many times I was pulling hair out of my head? And I've already learned that I can move fast. I'm spontaneous. You know, when yeah. I was a young kid cooking at a restaurant, I said, Owners used to let two people go, and I'd hire, they'd hire me, and I would do a job for two or three because I was so fast. You know, still there isn't anybody in that kitchen that if I, I could bury them all, you know, if I wanted to in a second, they, they, they can't keep. I'm just talking in general speed of my hands moving around. Still, yeah, they can't. They know they can't. I'm gonna try. Chris, my strongest one the other day, he's 24. He, I said something about my birth year or something because that's the year 53. You know, chef, you were born 53. I said, yeah, chef, I'm 60. I'm still buried. He goes, oh, I know, I know. <laughs> so I know there's no question about that. Yeah. You know, because it's just, you know, it's a different thing. But yeah. I've always been hyper. 
I can't drink coffee because I'll get crazy. And, you know, uh, that that amount of speed can help you become spontaneous, obviously. Sure. You know, like I used to work with Gray. Gray was uh, at Jail Day, and Gray is different than me. I would tell cooks that, you know, I know Gray. I love Gray. Gray is organized. Everything is in place. Yeah. He designed things months in advance. I can't do that. Things will rot if I decide design them too far in advance. You know, I gotta wait till the last minute. Clearly, whatever I was born with, that has a, a facility, and accepting a lot of extra work, yeah, and challenge to cook for many people uh, on one table and many tables at one time at one night over all these years. Developed a lot of practice where. You know, in the old days, I used to hang around with a lot of people, and like, I remember Philip Glass at some point one time, and uh, all these people that went, what's his name, uh, whose wife died a few years ago, skiing. Um, oh, the actor? Yeah. Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson. He used to come in a lot, and he used to come in the kitchen, and he used to say, hey, you know, I don't understand how you do these sauces. They seem so, they seem so complex, but then they feel so simple. I taste every layer. Yeah. How do you do these things? And we were talking in the kitchen, and I told him that, you know, it's pretty simple. When you go at a new dish, you've already had an intimate relationship with that bell pepper. Like that peach story, right? Mm-hmm. Except that you've cooked it every possible way. You've done everything possible to the peach or the pepper. It told you which one it liked the best. And it told you where, this is where I, I really enjoy that technique. Mm-hmm. I can really talk to you. I show you who I am. So then when you put the next one, you do the same thing. So when they go together, they have power. And you start with one, and you build a second layer. So now each layer is totally connected because you had an intimate relationship with each ingredient, and you have brought them to a long passage. I used to say a long walk. Took a long walk with my each ingredient and went through all different kinds of approaches of technique and different things. And then realize, gee, that really works. So all that stuff's floating around in your head. Then you put them together, and you, and you go from there. And I said, if I'm going to go up, I can build up. But never would I ever put something in that that I didn't have that intimate relationship, because then the balance is broken. You know, the strength and momentum. Yes. But, oh, it's so interesting. I just did Schindler's List. And I felt like I'd been given a large piece of wood, and I'd been whittling it down, whittling it down to the simplest form. Right. I feel like this movie, I found my power. So people would always tell you things like that. You're right. Does does a lot of people do that? Do other people? I don't know. Is it gifts that they don't have, or maybe they don't want to do it? Maybe they don't want to accept the challenge. And also, you can't just get there. You know, yeah. it takes a long time to get there. You yeah. know. Also, maybe they weren't given the opportunity because in the mid '80s I was introducing things different to an audience that didn't want it. Not everyone. So how do I get them to want it? And, you know, today everybody knows it, tasting menu, everybody knows it. You know, some things have been exploited. Obviously, there isn't enough diver scallops in the world to feed the menus that have written on diver scallops. Yeah. So, in Debo, you know, and those kind of things, which we were starting then. They used to make fun of me then. You know, writers would say to the captain, where is this pair from? You know. Uh, oh, you mean sarcastically? Yeah, sarcastically, because in the late 80s, I started writing where everything was. And now, of course, there's some geographical meaning. Yes, to things now, you know, like uh, wild salmon, the sockeye is very different than uh, the Copper River, you know, uh, king salmon is different, even the weeks are different, so people now have 
you know, everybody's starting to understand things differently. Yeah. A tri-star strawberry means something. It hits 16% sugar, you know, so why not, you know, learn what a tri-star is? Maybe you're going to buy it in a retail store. Right. Especially in those days, too, we were pushing the retail stores to bring stuff in, you know. Mm-hmm. I remember when shiitake mushrooms weren't even sold in any retail store. Sure. Imagine. So, you know, it just made sense to me because I had learned it and I want to celebrate it. I learned from the farmer yeah. what this is. But I had to pay a lot of that, you know, those people then. They didn't want to do it. So we paid, we paid what they would have got off the land by the acre. To grow what you wanted. Yeah. We paid based on formula. Yeah. And I would pay the seed stock. I would pay the land yield yeah. on an average. And if it worked, fine. If it didn't, at least they got the money in their effort. Yeah. And it worked. And then after a little while, they all realized, you know, someone like Rick, when he got a whole big story in the New York Times, when we went up to his farm with Robichon and yeah. Dina Kleinman, Patricia Wells and Florence Fabrica and wrote that giant story in potatoes within two years, Finglings all over the whole country. People like that started to realize, wow, you know, yeah. this, that was a big move in the 80s. A lot of stuff was happening. Um, Which, you mean the whole sourcing thing? Yeah, sourcing to yeah. Friday, going to meeting with people. Oh, and I had an interview things. with um, Larry for Joan, yeah. talking about how much time he'd spend working the phones trying to find <clears throat> all this stuff he wanted. Yeah, it was a lot of And work. there was no way to find it. He said he would just call chambers of commerce in little towns, yeah, you too. know, looking for walnuts and I had, stuff like that. That's a good point. I had 47 state chamber of commerce books in my files in my office. Is that right? And I would connect to all those different farmers. And I would ask, what are you going to do with those white peaches? I read that you have this much. And can I get them? And I used to pay in advance. A lot of people wouldn't do it. Some people did. Wouldn't do what? Some, Ship it? Go they, to they didn't want to do it. It's already committed. Very few ears were like, yeah, great. Well, listen, um, I got an idea about this. Are you interested? Right. Yeah. I'd go and meet them. Get on my bike, take off. I usually did that on Sundays. Did that for two or three years, you know. I'd bring girlfriends, you know, uh, but I would take off. And that's what I meant when I'd rather spend time. Right. I learned a lot about the farmers. We'd have great meals. I'd bring wine. We'd, we'd cook, you know. Just beautiful times then, looking at stuff growing that nobody was ever even exposed to. The enthusiasm and excitement of farmers bringing stuff in that knew that knew yeah. already how people are going to get excited about their food. You know, all that contagious momentum that builds on each other. He's to buy his carrots from Vermont. The Chateauneuf carrot, the only carrot with an appellation on it. And I used to make the carrot puree the way Virgil showed me, where it was just enough water. So you never added water. You never mm. threw the water out. You didn't add any spices because you glazed the carrots up. And they go from pastel to shiny. And that means the glucose and the carrot, humidity is coming out. Glucose is rising. So we're in the blonde caramel now, which is like a window into the vegetable. And that means sugar is rising. Now that stays there. That never go away. And you're locking in a texture. So you just put enough water in now so that you can cook it to a point where it's a little bit slushy, blend the mass, and I would do that. I wouldn't add anything except salt and pepper. And people used to sometimes come in like this in the old restaurant and say, can you tell me what that was? Right from the table. And I would say that was carrot. Really? I told my husband it was carrot, but he said it's pumpkin. Right. You know, and what are the spices you put in? I said, nothing. What? You didn't put any spices? Come on. I said, no. Because in the, you know, right. what was I doing three years before at the Cold Bus? The big steamer, boiling uh, 50 pounds, 100 pounds of carrots, and 
put them to the soft, take them out the skin, yeah. throw them in the big brazier where there's two cases of cream in there now, and right. cook that and put all the cinnamon and nutmeg and all the spice and right. all no, that water was thrown away. We, they were throwing away flavor, and they weren't even using flavor, and they wouldn't have time to baste pans, yeah. take the caramel off the pan, lack yeah. it back on. All these techniques were employed then. It takes time to do that. Sure. When I started Monster you know, and even over there, I remember Jeffrey Steingart, it still gives me a hard time saying, you know, that uh, he ordered pizza in, you know, he ordered pizza into the restaurant. You know, and was that some kind of dig at the the time between courses or something? No, like that? he didn't get at his table yet. He was in a lot of waiting for his table. Yeah, because we didn't turn tables. No, we gave everybody three hours, two hours and forty five minutes, three hours. So many people stayed. Every restaurant said your chairs are too comfortable, and they're sitting around telling me, "Dang, you're never going to make it. You're too cheap, and your chairs are too comfortable. And what are you trying to do here? Yeah. It's not a club. It's a restaurant. You got, you know, what are you doing?" Some guys would really lecture me. I just sit there like this. I don't say anything. Okay, thank you. Goodbye. And then, you know, quickly, you know, we grew and grew and accolades came in. And then I still didn't want to turn tables. And Siri always would tell me the first year open. It's good that they wait. Make them wait. If the table's ready, make them wait 15 minutes. Make them wait. Why not? Show them who's boss? No, to show them that it's worth it and it's in demand, I guess, you know? Yeah. But, you know, but what about that whole topic? That was a I never did anything intentionally to make people wait, but I certainly wasn't going to turn tables, put checks down until they asked for them. I wanted to do the kind of food I wanted to do. I believed it was ready. It what was that to you, if you were going to put that in your words? At that I, time? I believe that the time was ready for food, cooked other minute, time, customers were acclimated totally up to the speed of the Nouvelle Cuisine restaurants. That's all they talked about. It's time that we introduce that here now. We need to understand that. So this was sort of the culmination of that pact you made with... Yeah. That was, yeah. right? This yeah. was kind of the moment. Two years later. Yeah. There was never a point there where I didn't do one plate, where I didn't try to do the best I could, even though I was late getting the food out. They waited, but they came back. Right. And they were happy. I worked with my heart. I still work with my heart. I, don't ever, I never did anything. Yeah. I don't do things half-assed. I'm not going to run around blowing the horns, but... Right. When I'm doing something, I gotta do it the best I can do, or else I don't want to do it. Right. You know, that's my inner soul. Yeah. You know, if I don't feed that, I destroy myself. That was an April 18th, 2014 interview with Chef David Boulay, whose life spanned May 27, 1953, through February 12, 2000. 24. Rest in peace.